0: We are continuing our study on David's life and heart. And today's episode is actually double episode. There are very similar episode repeated in two chapters after. So we're going to actually take a look at First Samuel's entire chapter verse twenty four. I mean chapter twenty four. Uh, Stan just read only seven verses. It's a long chapter. It's very similar. Episode is repeated almost like the same incident but in a different setting. Um, I think we will focus on this chapter. We call it a Victory in Engedi, the Wilderness of Engedi. And the 26th is uh, David encounters the perfect opportunity to kill Saul again, but he spares his life for the second time in the Mount of Hakila. And then we'll combine those stories and learn very important stuff about, I mean, the the important thing about this this chapter not only gives us glimpses of this lessons and examples what we can learn, but it reveals David's heart. After all, our series is titled, A Man After God's Own Heart. What is it like? And I'm anxious to, to share what God has placed in my heart. But let's start with this. Let's make a quick preliminary observations. And, and thus, the questions arise from the, those observations on the story of David's victory in Engedi first of all it was an episode repeated again uh Engedi and Hakila, that revealed God's heart and from that the question that arises if so what did David's heart reveal as a god's a man after God's own heart oh well, this is one of those things that made my heart a leaf for joy. That David's brokenness is there. But to see this, and I long for men and women in our church, would become like David's heart, a cultivated heart. Secondly, it was a perfect chance, almost like... The <coughs> No-brainer for David to take revenge on his enemy, Saul. And if so, what does this story teach us about loving our enemies? Why doesn't he kill him? Why doesn't he get rid of this monumental monumental problem in his life not only for him, but the six hundred men who is hiding with him, who gave their entire lives to team up with David for hope for Israel, and thirdly, it was an incident in which Saul seemed to have genuine regret. You decide. Uh, as David spared his life and he let him know twice he has a similar response and I don't think he's faking it if so the question comes why didn't this Engedi experience change Saul going forward why two chapters later he repeats the same thing again And lastly, it was an event that was marked by David's victory. So th- this is actually what got me excited about the passage. I, I'm hoping that you will keep your heart open, the victory in Engedi. The question is, what is this victory all about? Against whom or against what did he have a victory so looking at this story, there are at least four lessons that we could draw and this story and twenty um, sixth of first Samuel is very similar once again, so this story goes something. Like this, and I'm going to read it uh, in a moment. But in a cave, when Saul was chasing after hunting for David, and David and his army are in most innermost part of dark cave, and Saul, King Saul, really had to go really bad, and he went in there to relieve himself. And then, David, instead of killing him, he let him go. And then he shouts to Saul, "What he did," and he says regretful things. In the Mount of Hacila, he chases Saul, chases David again. This time. David and his one of his men, Abisha, um, gets this courage. Who wants to go with me to the camp of King Saul? So you could imagine, right? All these tents and then Saul's army is there. It's probably most innermost part of that camping, uh, the military camp but that these two brave men go into Saul's and stand next to each other, and then Abisha says, let me do it. Because there was a spear uh, poked in the right next to Saul's bed, and basically he's saying, I will not strike twice. You know what that means? Oh, this is kind of, it gets me really excited, not only their courage, and he's saying, it doesn't take twice or three times to kill him. I don't, I'm not going to strike him twice. For one strike, he will be killed in silence. And once again, Saul denies it and forbids him. Not to do anything. And then same thing happens. My father and Saul responds with regret and blessings. So in light of those two stories, very similar, we're going to focus on 24 as the same lesson. But Here's a lesson number one. In sparing Saul's life, David's heart for God was revealed. What about his heart? His fear of the Lord and his patient trust in God's promise. And as you read, as we read it together, think about what is the primary reason that held him back from getting rid of his monumental problem once for all. First one. When Saul returned from the following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and steadily cut off a corner of Saul's rope. Verse 5. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid, forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The very first and foremost reason why David didn't kill Saul is not because of King Saul. It's because of the Lord, Yahweh, whom he served. We could see the glimpses of his not only loyalty, but reverent respect, deepest honor, and God's word was a final authority to him. King Saul was a crazy man. King Saul was his biggest problem in his life and he has to run under run as a fugitive with his 600 men because of king Saul's crazy jealousy yet he doesn't see him as a person only but he sees as God's anointed the Lord's anointed who made him king not people God. Yeah, of course, in our generation it, we become cynical about um, the generations before, especially greedy pastors or te- television list using this. Any kind of criticism come at him and he will say, how dare you put your hand out against the Lord's anointed? They're absolutely wrong. But from our point of view, look at God, not just all these people problem. What David is doing is that his deepest center, his desire was not only to fear the Lord, but to honor the Lord. And it was almost His desire to follow what God says. And in light of what God says, he holds on to God's promise. As a shepherd boy, he was anointed with oil by Samuel. And it's been several years already. And humanly speaking, Nothing's happening toward him becoming a king. At the end of Saul's hand, he has encountered so many risks. He's almost spent. But in yet, he looks to God. And his friends, his closest friend, and his comrade are saying, seems like he's even quoting this is the this is the day that Lord promised that he will give your enemies into your hand and you could do whatever you want to against your what you what you please no God didn't say that God actually promised." That I will protect you from your enemy's hand. But it's a slightly different angle, isn't it? So the important lesson is that when we encounter perfect opportunities, wow, you cannot believe this perfect opportunity. Not all of them are God sent. Not all of them are from God. Not all of them are blessings. Not all of them lead you to better ground and better intimacy with God. In a holistic sense, God becomes the center. And This is very dangerous for for pragmatic world. People like us. Anything that works must be good, right? But have you ever thought about when really good opportunities come, the first thing that we need to do is what David did. Look through the fear of the Lord, honoring God. Can I do this? Is this what God has given me? And another thing is our well-meaning friends, quoting Bible verses, Can't even say, this is what you need to do. Go for it. But if we do not rely on the Spirit on a daily basis, if you're not seeking God's guidance, all those good things sound too good. It's too late to say no. I've seen over and over, brothers and sisters, That on the surface, it's a better pay, better job, better move. But that comes with the traveling and their spiritual life is gone. Rather than seeking God and the affluence dominates them, control them. And in the long run, even affluence and the better position and the office in the corner window, all that doesn't measure up to their expectation. And at the end of the midlife, there's a crash going on. Is this what I live for? One of the authors said that your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Have you thought about that? Another thing is, David, trust. Trust in God's promise. Oh, this is so against American culture, because you claim what is yours, rightly yours. You assert yourself. So to us Americans, Jacob is more appealing, because it's our personality. And honestly, I'm more like Jacob in my nature because I'm such an all-gold-oriented person. My drivenness, whatever the reason is, in my past ministry, resembled Jacob, not David. David is waiting for God's timing. God's way seems to be weird, obscure, but he puts his trust patiently, Jacob what did he do, oh God has promised from his birth the, the older will serve the younger I will bless Jacob in spite of those promises, he has to take things into his matter and even taking his tiger mom with him to deceive his father as if he is Esau, the firstborn. And then Isa gets mad. And then Isa chases after him. And because of the life of suffering, not because he's suffering for God, but, but because he was so driven to take his own things. And God is teaching him. God is teaching him lessons from his uncle because his uncle start deceiving him and then you you thought you get you're married to a, this beautiful wife and you wake up the morning after is another woman and you have to work another 7 years to f- finally have that woman and the woman dies the one that the many women but many wives but the one that you love my Rachel. She passes away. At the Jebok River. Finally. He learns a lesson. Of After long hard sufferings. Wrestles with God. And he's. Broken. His hip is broken. Figuratively speaking. It also. I mean as a symbolic gesture but from that point on he is no longer same Jacob his ego his stiff necked eye is bent toward God and he starts asking questions before whatever he does even his son Joseph was inviting the entire family before he takes a move he asks Lord should we go should I go No one becomes a saint overnight. And even including David, he makes same mistakes over and over. But the glimpses of heart, why he was considered as a man after God's own heart is because this brokenness, humility before God. And because of his just uttermost. Desire to, to please the Lord and to fear the Lord. Do you have that? Or do you have many axioms in your life? That you have to please your wife or husband. You have to please your parents. You have to please your kids. You have to please your own standard of living. Whatever that is. And you will be pulled in so many directions. But if your heart is single-minded and toward God, you will see this. The fear of the Lord in your heart. And patient trust in God's promise. He is waiting. Of course, he goes through a lot of struggles and doubts as well. But he waits until the Lord brings the throne to him. He waits until the Lord deals with his enemy. Number two lesson. In sparing Saul's life, David's love for his enemy was revealed, which is repaying good for evil and leaving vengeance to God. Look at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out, out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord and king! And when Saul looked behind him, <clears throat> David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The one one thing I forget to mention is that um, when David cut off the corner of Saul's robe, first of all, Saul... Saul Any king's robe represents his authority, the loyalty. The robe is not just a cloth, but robe is a kingship, symbolic. And then you might think that, oh, David seems to be so overly sensitive. He cut off and his heart struck him and he felt guilty. Oh, if you read the first Samuel and second Samuel, there is no one who is more courageous than David. One of the reasons why David was forbidden to build a temple for God, God's house in the Old Testament, because of he shed too, many, too much blood. He, he killed too many mean men, in other words. He was a warrior of warriors. But well, why this sensitivity? Once again, because of his single-mindedness toward God. God wasn't one of the many important things. God was ultimate priority. There was no rival. And because of that sensitivity is there, he felt immediately, he didn't kill him. But even t- touching his robe and symbolically that he did something against the Lord's anointed. Okay, if you look at this story, you will notice like an underground message of what it means to love your neighbor. I think one of the most difficult thing for us is that because our postmodern generation we are so feeling oriented and guided. The feelings are so important and we begin to think that love your enemies and we somehow need to have this warmth that I must like my enemies. No. Look at what David did. David did good things, kind things, and he says kind words. What was going on through his heart? It wasn't David was feeling all these warmth and feelings of the you know, affection for for King Saul. So let me ask you this. and Even Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 20, 33. Pray for those who persecute you. Hmm. Do good to those who hate you. Do we do that? Here's another one. Notice he calls my father, my king, my lord. He's using kind words and attitude in spite of his feelings. Well, after all, he was his father-in-law. Do you know that um, King Saul seems to be regretful here? He actually feels genuine regret here. And then what was going on, King Saul actually uses David's name. My son David, is that your voice? Up until now, King Saul used to use this third-person language. you, You know, even the prodigal son story, instead of calling, my brother came Wasting your money. He didn't say that. The older son will say, the son of yours. Right? Same thing with King Saul. Referring to David, the son of Jesse. He doesn't call him my son, my David. But here, he does it. So what does it mean for us to love our neighbors? we are to seek our vindication from God, leaving the vengeance to God. Trusting in God's justice that he will equalize everything in due time. And there is no one in heaven who will complain about injustice. Because he will make everything right. Let me be honest with you. When you say love your enemies. Most of us. Will say I don't have enemies. I, I, I'm not running for. Political office. There is no one who is accusing me. No one, no one is suing me. And no one is posting bad things about me. Uh, business I'm going okay more workplaces there's some people so let me just bring those things up you might as well think about what you and I call difficult people the type of people you want to avoid can't believe she goes to this church I'm not sure I could stay here or home group I can't believe I have to work with this guy at work. Because he's such a... Whenever we use those language, there's an ultimate. I get along with everyone. This is a language. I get along with everyone, but you're uniquely so difficult. What is wrong with you? That's our attitude. I'm telling you, that's your enemy. The feelings that you have, or whether the person might hate you back or not, the feelings (coughs) that you have the desire to separate your life, almost like, I wish I don't run into him, run into her all the time anymore, and at least minimize our context. Those are enemies. Will you do good? Will you call their first name? And say whatever that guy. That face. Will you not use the adjective. That harmed the person. Will you not talk about. That person behind your back. Behind that person. Negatively. That's what it means to. Love your enemies. Stop idealizing the noble intention you have to have affection. Because of this is such an idealistic goal, we give up. The next time when you run into someone who is difficult to you, say hi. Make an eye contact. Smile. Not because you're faking it, but because this is your obedience to the Lord. And I have a few people uh, that comes to my mind. And one of those people are this, the person who conned my, my mom well, meaning she was trying to start a business in, in Dallas and $45,000 on the spot. And then we later find out such a case was up to 26 or 27 similar type of cases, a district attorney. We didn't still get that money. But I still remember the anger that arose. And when I saw him, it becomes a racial issue too. Like I I just, I just hated this white face, kind of coming up with the blood. And then I was saying, how can you be so sounding intelligent and so polite and so as if you have a good manner? You want the truth? I wanted to use some words few words that I know which started with F and started with S and just at him, right? But my mom told me I was a youth pastor. (laughs) There was no way I could say those things. So even those people pray for those who persecute you. I don't have to like them. How about this? Even in this kind of community, we run into each other's normal friction and conflict all the time. How about committing to quietly, without telling anyone, that you pray for that person daily, genuinely? Do you believe God? the supernatural power of God, he will turn your heart. Did David believe Saul's regret that his pursued hunting of him to kill him will stop? I don't think so. But at least Saul was calling his name, he was weeping at that moment. We'll find out the lesson from that in a moment. But let's make sure we understand David's lesson. Our lesson from David's example is not to have feelings, but to do good things in our attitude and speech and (coughs) deeds. Lesson number three. In Saul's response to David, His regret was not enough. I think his regret was genuine. He wasn't faking it. <clears throat> but the lesson is a true repentance requires a change of one's center beyond regret. If you're con- considering yourself continually the center, Saul, at the center of Saul's heart, Saul was always sitting in the center. Saul was the center of universe, so he might have regret. He might have uh, remorse in some sense as well, and he even acknowledged. But he reverted to his own self. The jealousy will come back. True repentance. The word repentance is actually change. Of mind. I mean, I mean to, to be more clear, I think it's a change of direction. Let's look at what goes on here. Verse 16. As, well, as, well, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for, you, for, for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Can you believe it? He's acknowledging now. That the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me. I think this part is sincere also too. Acknowledging that the only request he has is this. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offsprings after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Traditionally, when the kingship changes, the new king wipes out entire family and relatives of the king before. By a sign of reformation, new reign has arrived. So King Saul is actually saying all this. Didn't you seem genuine? Be very careful because we could have a lot of regrets too. Sometimes we could even feel sorrowful. But our deep change will not occur unless we change the direction from the self to God. From my way to God's way autonomy to submitting to God's authority. Think about uh, Judas Iscariot along with Simon Peter who wept bitterly after rooster crow. Jesus said you will deny Three times before the rooster crows. And after that, the tradition tells us that each morning, whenever rooster crows, Peter bitterly wept. What about his, Judas Iscariot? He didn't want the 30 coins of silver anymore, and threw it at, at the uh, high priest. I don't want this. And they basically said, blood is in your hand. Instead of repenting, turning around and going to the master, going to confess, he killed himself. He hung himself. There's no, re- there's no repentance. There's a full of regret. So remember this next time. When you realize this is my fault, my wife is right. And don't say, Okay, I'm sorry, and right away. And then you will not change. I believe me, believe me, I've done that too. And to your husband, don't say, Alright, all right, okay, you're wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, and let's move on. Instead of doing that, when your husband or your hu- wife or your friend, or whoever is there, not there, kneel down before God and confess. I surrender myself, my stiff-necked eye to you, and I submit to your kingship, lordship over me. I am yours. I turn away from my ways to your ways. That's repentance. Otherwise, I'll regret We'll try to minimize the ramification of our wrongdoings. Oh, believe me, the regretful people cry a lot, sobbing a lot. They have self-pity a lot. throw a self-pity party. But change of one's center beyond regret is true repentance. Number four lesson, I noticed that uh, in terms of the the verses of exposition, I should this should be number three, right? But there is a reason why I put it as number four, because not only this is important, but because there's a little surprise of my observation and understanding of the text. I thought Saul was finding this intense battle against his enemy Saul, but victory in Engedi is not about that. Number four lesson is victory, David's victory in Engedi was not over his external enemy but over his internal enemy. Victory over evil within his heart. Look at verse thirteen. As the proverb of the ancients say, listen to this out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. You know what that means. I'm a good person, but I made a mistake that's a wicked thing that I did. No. Apple comes out of apple tree. Wickedness comes out of wicked person. That's what he's saying. After whom... Has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. David calls himself. I'm a flea. What, is the, what in the world is the king of Israel. Doing. Chasing after flea. May the Lord therefore be judge, And give sentence bef- between you and me. Me and you and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. All this is powerful. What is David facing as, you, as he fears the Lord? He sees the soul, king's soul within his heart. The New Testament calls it flesh, sarks, sin nature, stiff-necked eye. The one that who insists in his own way, her way. The one that who is prideful. The one that who gets jealous. The one that who is poked by someone and all of noble things are just thrown away and become vicious. What is Saul doing when he was young? He seems to be a different man, a now crazy man. And David sees this. The Lord picked him and anointed him, but he became a person that he the Lord did not choose. I don't want to be King Saul the second. Isn't it true that when we have an intense conflict or struggle, usually the person who is most like us, the the very things that I struggle with, and that when I see another person doing that, we become very, very angry. (coughs) So we need to think about, am I actually accusing my own heart? when I am accusing that person. Well, let me put let me it down. Very, I, I'm not talking about this super psychological thing at all. Seth, among four boys, or my third boy, Seth is most like me. Very deliberate, organized, and I could trust him cleaning the whole house all by himself rather than to the other boys. He puts his heart into it. He's passionate. He cries when he, when he gets struck, struck out in baseball. That's me. But when you see him passionate for God, it's incredible. He, he's in, writing is incredible. Whoa! From his heart, this came out. Guess I, how I clash the most at home? Seth, he's trying to be a leader and corrects my pronunciation every time. Seth, when you're little, you couldn't even say Silas. You used to say Cyrus, Cyrus, R and L. But now you're correcting me and you're trying to lead me. So he doesn't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to do either. I said, uh, "Set, you need to respect your dad. And dad, you need to respect me as a person too. <laughs> it goes the same way. Gene Edwards. I mentioned it um, in the beginning of our series. And I'm going to close with this quote. A tale of three kings. King Saul, King David, King Absalom. And he writes as as like a play script. It's a poetic, it's very, there's an artistic element. So if you're looking for equivalent of Bible verses, it might be a little different. Take, he takes a freedom, artistic freedom, creativity there. But his insight is so true, so good. Oh, there's so many passages I like to share but I need to show, share only uh, one passage, one, one side. So here it is. <clears throat> this is the, the setting is uh, in the cave. And the script goes like this. Why, David, why? You could have eliminated our problem just the one hour ago. You had him. Israel could be free. We could be forever free. Why did you let him go? And let me pick up from this. This time, it was David's answer that blazed with fire. Edwards writes, Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Saul's ways. Better he kill me then I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. Not now, not ever. And Edwards remarks, that night men went out to bed on cold, wet stoned and muttered about their leader's distorted mesochistic views of relationships to kings especially mad ones. Angels went to bed that night too and dreamed in the afterglow of that rare rare day that God might yet to be able to give his authority to a trustworthy vessel. A man after God's own heart. Brothers and sisters, here are two quick, I mean, just quick recap. Four things we talked about. Number one, fear of the Lord and trust in God's promise. How will you cultivate your heart to fear the Lord and patient trust? Patiently trust in God's promise. Number two, Repaying good for evil, leaving vengeance to God, even for the difficult people. How will you learn to love your enemies? Not by feelings, but by attitude and actions. Number three, change your, your center beyond regret. How will you go beyond regret so your change of heart will bear the fruit of true repentance? Number four, victory over evil within your heart. How will you fight the good fight of faith for your own victory in Christ against the evil in your heart? My prayer, as we're going into the communion, that the, the Lord will soften our hearts, that we will begin to see that in spite of our noble intentions and trying so hard, as long as our center is ourselves, we become like soul. When somebody pokes, somebody disturbs, somebody violates us. But if our center is turned and shifted to God, we can become like David. in in spite of others' distraction and even hatred, we could find peace and rest and actually ability to rejoice in being sorrowful. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for your scripture. How even this story is packed with wisdom from above. Yes, Lord, we too desire to become man and woman after your own heart. Teach us, mold us to submit to love our enemies to trust your promise patiently instead of taking things in our own hands and father we declare our genuine desire to overcome the flesh within us may we become more like David, in our character rather than soul. And use our church like David. We humbly wait for your time and you for your glory as we seek our joy in you. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.